Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Friday, November 16, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander here with you. It's been a, an interesting past two days in college basketball. Some incredible performances, surprising results. And what I want to start with um, is what happened on Wednesday night on campus at Villanova. Michigan went to Villanova, beat the reigning national champion 73-46. John Beeline's Wolverines were six-and-a-half-point underdogs at tip-off. They end up winning by 27 in a true road environment. Norlander, on a scale of one to WTF, where are you on Michigan winning by 27 at Villanova? I'm all the way at WTF, Parrish. That was stunning. Um, do you do you think that was more shocking than when we saw Duke do to Kentucky on opening night? Um, I saw your poll that you put on Twitter, and I voted in your poll that you put on Twitter, and yes, I thought it was more shocking. I think from a point spread perspective, it's actually not because Kentucky was a two-point favorite that lost by 34. So what does that do? That's like a 36-point difference? Yes. And so what is this? This is 27. Pretty close. I think it's 33.5 to 34. So we're splitting hairs here. But I, I... I think it's easier to make sense of Duke with three possible top five picks running a new-look Kentucky team completely off of a neutral court. Still shocking, obviously. I think it's easier to make sense of that than Villanova losing at home to by, by 27 to a Michigan team that's, yeah, good, played for the national title. Um, last season, but but had lost some pieces. I, I was more surprised, to answer your question in a long-winded way, more surprised by what happened uh, Wednesday night than what I was on the opening night of the college basketball season. Yeah, the majority said the same. 3,400 results in that Twitter poll. 67% believe Michigan over Nova was more shocking than Duke. Uh, just, you know, completely destructing um, Kentucky. Uh, now, that was also opening night, so, you know, maybe a little bit more of unpredictability uh, that comes with the first game of the season. To me, that's also part of this. These Villanova, Michigan had played some, played a couple of games apiece, and Nova, you know, it's it's at home. It's still got guys from the national title game. It's still, by the way, it's it's got a solid uh, incoming freshman class, a good a good sophomore class, and as well. And so this was this was absolutely a stunner. Um, I, I I to a stunner to this point, Parrish, Like when we got early into the second half. Uh, I was convinced that Villanova would not be making a run, and that's normally not the case. Obviously, with the way that Villanova's built, the way that it has um, a, th- a three-point leniency, and we'll get into some of that stuff uh, in other regards later on the podcast, um, you know, Villanova is... It runs its team as to where you're expecting some NBA type of, of runs and flashes, but I never thought that was going to happen against Michigan. Incredibly impressive defensive performance. They obviously flipped in uh, the Ken Palm rankings going into that. This is this is rough. I don't remember where they were exactly, but I want to say Nova was around like 7 or 8 in Ken Palm, and Michigan was down around 21 or 22. And as we sit here on Friday morning, Michigan's 11, Villanova's 13. Uh, and that, doesn't, that isn't always the case, by the way, because a lot of the rankings early in the season – We've mentioned this on the podcast before. The Kempom rankings are taking a lot of preseason projections into account. So actually, for the first two, three weeks, uh, results from games normally won't necessarily flip teams. But that was such a dominant win um, that clearly it, it, it had a major impact there. So I think it's more about Michigan than Villanova. I think Villanova ultimately will be okay. I, th- I think Villanova will win the Big East. This is the first loss of what I think will be no more than, honestly, Parish five before we get to 
the start of the Big East tournament this season. Um, so I, I think I think they'll come into shape for Michigan. You know, we just we underest underestimated them, and uh, uh, I could be wrong here, but maybe I'll just toss you under the bus right away. You did not have Michigan in your top twenty-five, or you did in the preseason. I did. Oh, you did. Okay, I, so we're good. There were some I don't, that didn't. I don't think I had them high enough. Clearly, no but one I, did. No one did. Clearly, no one. Uh, but, I, but I, yeah, but I had them. Okay, you did have them. Um, because there was some chirping and chattering from Michigan fans. I remember when the one to three fifty three went up. That uh, I think I had them like twenty or so, maybe twenty one, maybe nineteen. Uh, that they were still too low. And at the time, I thought, well, frankly, I, th I feel like I'm giving you guys a, a lot of respect here. I will give a shout to Mike DeCorsi because he had them tenth in his preseason poll. Um, right now, Michigan is second in defensive efficiency in America. That'll happen when you go and beat the reigning champs in their own building and hold them to forty six points. Uh, Charles Matthews looks good, and then Ignas. Brazdikis, I believe, um, the latest foreign import for Michigan. He looked fantastic. He's a freshman, uh, had a pretty solid rep as a recruit, but he was way better than anyone thought he would be. So we are seeing uh, a roster that is looking like it will not have too, too, too much of a drop-off here. You know, Jordan Poole, John Teske looked good in that game. Xavier Simpson, obviously a, a fine, fine defensive player. And even Isaiah Livers, who I think will pop this year, looked particularly good in that game. So I think it's a good sign for Michigan. And, yeah, if we want to sit here right now uh, and say the Big Ten, you have to put Michigan right there with Michigan State. It's completely fair. We'll get into some more Big Ten stuff later in the podcast. Overall, the league's looking pretty good right now. But whereas we thought it was going to be Michigan State and then, you know, a little bit of a gap, and then everyone else. No, at, the, at, at this stage, I think it's fair to put Michigan there. And then if you want to get aggressive with it and uh, and consider Indiana or even Purdue, I'd allow it, but I'd say give a little more time. At this at this point, Michigan is clearly being the team that's proven it. I had Michigan 21st in the preseason top 25-1, and one, and, and like I said, I, I think that was probably uh, too low. Where you and I will disagree, I think, is that you think what happened on Wednesday uh, – says more about Michigan than it says about Villanova. I, I think it might say more about Villanova. Afterward, uh, Jay Wright um, said, quote, I can't say I'm shocked that this happened. And I thought that was an interesting quote because coaches tend to know their teams better than, I guess, anybody knows their teams. In other words, we are looking at Villanova on paper, what they lost, what they're bringing back, what they're enrolling, whereas Jay's looking at them in a practice facility every day. And when he says, I can't say I'm shocked that this happened, that tells me that he hasn't seen in workouts the same stuff we've seen on paper. This is my point. The reason everybody had Villanova in the top 10 of uh, you know any preseason rankings is because, yeah, they lost their top four scores, but they returned two starters. Um, and they added a top 10 recruiting class. So they bring back Phil Booth, they bring back Eric Paschal, and they enroll a top 10 recruiting class featuring three top 65 players. But what happens if your t recruiting class doesn't do anything? This is what you get. Then you're just a team that lost your top four scores, and you're not getting anything. Because those, those three top 55 um, prospects, Javon, Javon Quinterly, he was ranked 29th class of 2018, He's averaging 3.3 points in 13.7 minutes per game. Cole Swider, he's ranked 44th class of 2018. He's averaging 2.7 points in 13 minutes per game. Brandon Slater, ranked 53rd class of 2018. 
He's averaging 0.7 points in 6.7 minutes per game. So in the preseason, when you're describing Villanova, you say it's a team that won the national championship, was quite clearly best team in the country last season. They're bringing back two starters, and they had a uh, top 10 recruiting class, three top 55 players. What they are in reality is a team that lost its top four scores, and the, top, the three top 55 players, they're not doing anything. So I don't think that means you're 27 points worse than Michigan, but I also don't think it means you're a top 10 team. Um, I, I still would probably pick them to win the Big East because I don't know who else you'd pick, but I, I'd, I, I, Villanova's got some stuff to work through. That seems clear. They do. Okay, so let's, let's hit on a couple notes on that. Um, first of all, so, okay, we're, we, are, we agree Villanova, we still think, will win the Big East. So we agree there. At when we get to Selection Sunday, Parish, I just want you know, just make a guess, make a prediction. Will Villanova be one of the ten best teams in America? No, no. Okay, I think it will be. Now, second note: um, when I talked with Jay Wright a few weeks back, the one thing he he really emphasized, and he he went out of his way to do so, is he said, if we're going to be Close to what we were last season. By that, he was not saying if we're going to get to the national title game. Just collectively, if Villanova is going to be an elite team, what has to happen is our sophomores have to get closer to playing like juniors, borderline seniors. And those are sophomores this season who didn't get a lot of burn last season, although Colin Gillespie started to have more of a role as the year went on. But he he referred to Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels, Demir Cosby, Roundtree. Those guys are are going to overshadow the freshmen, I think, to a decent degree this season. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing so far because, like, Pascal didn't have a great game, but he had, re- like, I think Pascal's really going to come come into zone and be and be a quality player. I don't think you have to worry about Phil Booth. I, I do think this sets up well for Villanova regardless in the long run. Paris, this is why I want your opinion as well. Like, we're three games in. The freshman numbers aren't good, but I don't think they're going to be especially great because I just think the sophomores are going to get more run, more opportunities, and there's not going to be one real standout guy there. But even if that's the case, like these are still going to be – these are still highly regarded prospects, Parish, and they're going to return for a sophomore and for a junior season, most of them almost certainly. Uh, Villanova doesn't have to deal with a lot of out transfers. So I still think in the long run – like this has been a, a rough start, but I think they're going to be okay with the freshmen. And then wouldn't you agree that – when you're a program like Villanova and you're bringing in recruits like this, like ultimately, Jay Wright should keep this thing going. Uh, like this is not we have not. I don't. You're not suggesting this, but just to to make it clear for listeners, this was not a, a, a missed evaluation after missed evaluation. Like these guys are gonna like Cole Swider is a freaking great college prospect. I I think two three years from now we're gonna look up and see that the guys here who may have had some issues to start their college career are still gonna be very very good players that are keeping Villanova at the top of the Big East. Oh, uh, listen, when I say I don't think Villanova's a top 10 team, that doesn't mean I think Villanova's not a top 25 team. It, it doesn't mean I don't think Villanova you know, is going to be safely in the NCAA tournament and probably win the Big East. It just means I don't think Villanova is – Is I think we over, either overvalued what the roster in its current form is or underestimated what losing four NBA players does to you when you aren't enrolling – Zion Williamson, Cam Reddish, and, and, and R.J. Barrett. You know, uh, Quinterly, Swider, and Slater are good, very good prospects. But it, it's not 
I think we saw this on, on opening night of the Champions Classic. Like, Kentucky had the second-best recruiting class in the country. They got five-star guys. Their five-star freshmen are not like uh, Dukes, not the same dudes. And Kelton Johnson's in that conversation, but they're not the same dudes. And Villanova's just even a little a little step lower than that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, Quinterly Swider Slater, I think uh, uh, they'll all be uh, very good college players, but they're not right now. And if you go back and read a whole bunch of the stuff about Villanova from the preseason, it was bring back two starters at a top 10 recruiting class. And the top 10 recruiting class isn't really having an impact so far. And I think that that lowers the ceiling a little bit on what Villanova can be. But yeah, to be clear, I, I don't think Villanova's winning another national championship going to another Final Four, but I still think they're winning the Big East. I still think they'll be a, I don't know, top four or five seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, I'd buy stock in Jay's program if I could. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not predicting the demise of Villanova. I'm just uh, pointing out that part of what people thought might make Villanova not slip too much doesn't seem to be there right now. Yeah, last thought on this. Um, that was the first time, credit to Ken Pomeroy for pointing this out, and then everyone everyone taking the stat and running with it. Uh, first time in 108 games that Villanova lost a game by double digits. Uh, that did not happen. We just hadn't, whereas Villanova was once seen as the program that was good, Paper Tiger, loses in the tournament early, like whatever. It, it eliminated that when it, you know, won national championships, made Final Fours, and, and did what it did over the, over the past three seasons. So this was a weird kind of flashback deal with Villanova in which it was just, it was completely undressed, and it had been so, so long since we had seen this team look like this, look a little bit vulnerable. But ultimately, um, we're a lot on the same page, but uh, just disagree with. I think they're going to be okay. I think we're going to get to uh, mid-February. They're going to be rolling. They're going to be a clear top-10 team. Uh, you think just outside of that, but we wait and see. But obviously, just a- another interesting and major uh, major development early in the season. I just want to take uh, this stuff in chronological order, I guess. Let's stick on Wednesday night because the other story besides that was Duke, which is – uh, the biggest show in college basketball, arguably the biggest show in all of basketball, as long as Kevin and Draymond stopped fighting. Uh, they were awesome again. Zion was awesome again. Uh, Zion Williamson had 21 points, 9 rebounds in 21 minutes against Eastern Michigan. He was 10 of 12 from the field. So now on the season, he's averaging 25.3 points, 10.7 rebounds, 3.0 blocks, 2.7 assists in 25.3 minutes per game. So, again, 25.3 points in 25.3 minutes per game. I think that means he's averaging a point per minute. He's um, 32 of 39 from the field through three games, which means he's only missed seven shots all season. He's blocked nine. He's missed seven shots and blocked nine. What are we even talking about here? The statistical dominance continues. And yet, interestingly enough, granted, this is still really small sample size. Um, Kempom has his... Uh, player of the year ranking formula, which frankly it, it goes a lot into how much, how efficiently you produce and how much you produce for your team. Zion's fourth. Can you trivia time? No, no, no cheating. What not. I, what three players are ranked ahead of Zion? And I will tell you, one is in the SEC, one is in the Big Ten, and one is in the ACC. Okay, the Big Ten I would assume is Ethan Happ. Correct. He's second. Yeah, uh, Ken Palm loves Ethan Happ, yeah. <laughs> and also like I just looked, I just moved Wisconsin into the top twenty-five and one because I bounced Oregon and Syracuse out, and then I just moved up who was my previous number twenty-seven. That was Wisconsin, and so I looked at Ethan Happ's uh, numbers this morning, and 
Like he's damn near uh, averaging a triple double. It's just through two games, I think, but he's almost averaging triple double. So that doesn't surprise me. Um, the SEC is it Darius Garland? It is not, but that's actually a that's a solid guess. It is not Darius Garland. It Nas Reed. It is not, but that's also another good guess. He's been awesome. Uh, um, SEC. Who's the, is it? Who's the, who's the obvious pick then? The obvious pick? Yeah. I don't know that there is one. I think there is. Just tell me who it is. I don't know. Grant Williams, the reigning SEC player of the year. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hey, by the way, Tennessee's looked awesome so far this season. I mean, uh, two nothing games, uh, but then they played Georgia Tech earlier this week. I think it was also on Wednesday night and just handled them, no problem. That that team, I talked to Dane Bradshaw, who used to play at Tennessee, um, who now works for the SEC Network, and you know he he agreed with me. They they just they somebody's going to beat Tennessee, and they'll like multiple teams will beat Tennessee, but they ain't going to beat themselves. Man, that's about that seems like one of the safest teams and reliable teams in the country. Uh, so Grant Williams, yeah, I should have thought he's of got twenty two points, eight point three boards, three point seven assists uh, in thirty one minutes a game, uh, one point three steals. Grant Williams has been. Awesome. Uh, it's just a matter of Tennessee getting a few more national games for him to get some more shine. Third player out of the ACC. I'm gonna uh, get. Hold on, hold on. I'm gonna give you three guesses. I still don't think so. I'm gonna give you three guesses. Not an unknown guy. Not an obvious guy. And I still don't think you'll get it with three guesses. So who 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 are you saying? Marquise Reed. Nope. Uh if it's not an obvious guy, then it's not Luke May. It's not. Does he play at Virginia Tech? No, but he plays in that state. That means Virginia. In theory. <laughs> um, I don't even know who's putting up numbers for Virginia. I never like I uh, I no nobody's ever putting up big numbers for Virginia. Is it? Um, uh, is it DeAndre Hunter? It's not. It is one Ty Jerome. Uh, I, Ty Jerome. He's averaging 20 points, 4.5 boards, 5.5 assists, three steals, and shooting 68% from the field. He's been fantastic so far. So those are three guys who have, uh, in terms of the, the K-Poy, if we will, that are um, outperforming Zion from an efficiency standpoint, but whatever, do continues to look really good. I had said that uh, – I had said that – James Thompson the fourth would keep Zion to his worst statistical output of the season. I think that is technically true, but it is also incorrect because Zion only played like 21 minutes because he didn't need to play anymore. Um, he made just a, a ridiculous display of that team overall. Um, it's 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 reached the point here already. I was at the gym on Thursday. Uh, the jump came on, and that's an NBA-oriented show. And it started with Zion Williamson. So this is this is what is happening here. the The NBAization of Zion in college has already begun. And if you're fatigued by it, strap in. I mean, it's just going to be everywhere that you are taking in college basketball content. It's just going to be unavoidable. And frankly, at this point, it's it's still fun. It's fun for me. It's fun for you. I, I still enjoy watching him do what he does because. We have a tendency to say this every season, Parrish, with usually a, a one-and-done guy, but it's never rang 
more loudly or, or to me more true uh, than this, I guess, since Anthony Davis. Like, there just has not been a player like this in college basketball. It has not happened. Uh, you speak with scouts. They say that Zion steps into the league tomorrow. He's a top three athlete in the NBA. So we just have not seen this. He has exceeded the hype. His teammates are playing extremely well. Cam Reddish is actually being held out just a little bit as a precaution. Uh, he could still have his moments coming. There's no doubt about it. Duke is 3-0, and and their next game will be Monday in Maui at the Maui Invitational against San Diego State. That's all true. Um, I can't wait to get there. And, it, yeah, if you think the Zion stuff is big right now, wait till he's on national television three days straight because that's what he's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, San Diego State on Monday. On Tuesday, I think the way the bracket sets up, we should have, barring upsets, Duke-Auburn, the two top ten teams. And then you could be headed for a – championship game of Duke Gonzaga and so you get that uh, you could have Zion against San Diego State then against Auburn then against Gonzaga um, that'd be awesome Parrish. yeah it, it'll it'll be awesome just for some context here um right now Steph Curry has the best play, uh, player efficiency rating in the NBA it's 28.78 LeBron's at 27.51 trivia time what's uh mm. Zion's P-E-R right now. I only know because uh, our buddy Jonathan Gavoni from ESPN tweeted it yesterday. Okay. Uh, I did not see the tweet. It's got to be absurd. I'll say it's like I'll say it's like 39.3. It's got to be crazy at this range with how with how efficient he's been. Again, Steph Curry is best P-E-R in the NBA right now 28.78. LeBron 27.51. Zion Williamson through three games 58.5. It's just not sustainable. <laughs> That's not sustainable. Like maintaining above forty is absurd. Like absurd. So, for as much as uh, as as great as he's been, uh, let's do let's appreciate this because he's going to be above sixty percent from the field. Like all that's going to happen. You cannot sustain those numbers. It just oh, the the competition will get better. You're going to have road games eventually that you're going to face. Um, he's still going to be great, but this is like that. That's that's practically a fantasy number. Like it just like in terms of like unimaginable made up stuff. You cannot. That's ridiculous. Um, no one's ever even come close to approaching that. I I'm actually I I almost don't believe that that number is true because that's so ridiculously high for per. No, it's 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 uh it's insane. And yet that it's a it's um you know a testament to what he's been doing. Again, only through three games and against. At least in in two of those three games, totally inferior competition. But um, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens in Maui. Uh, I, I obviously he's not going to keep that up, but I think he's going to be overwhelming way more often than not. I updated, by the way, my mock draft uh, for CBSSports.com. It published uh, last night, and I have Zion Williamson as the uh, number one pick. We won't spend much time on it, but my argument is just, you know, all we've ever seen him do is just overwhelm everybody. And there are questions about his shooting. There's questions about how this stuff is actually going to translate to the NBA. You know, when you uh, talk about prospects, like you go on a radio station somewhere and they ask you about a prospect, uh, the follow-up question is almost always, so who does he remind you of in the NBA? And with Zion, there's really not a great comp. I mean, nobody's ever he's, – he's not like anybody else. And so um, that's intriguing and, and, and maybe also concerning – because it's hard to, to 
to know exactly how this is going to work. Whereas when you see a prospect like Kevin Durant, it's very easy to know how that's going to work. You see a prospect like Anthony Davis, very easy to know how that's going to work. Um, how is this Zion stuff going to work? It, it, there, there's some questions there, but the argument I made in the column is just, I don't know how you pass on him. I mean, he's a, a generational talent, a generational athlete who's done nothing but overwhelm anybody who's ever been on a basketball court with them. And you pass on that, and then he gets in the NBA, and he's doing the same type of stuff. And you're going, what, 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 why did I not just trust that it would work? Um, I, I don't think it's a no-brainer. There are other options. R.J. Barrett, his teammate, Cam Reddish, his teammate, Nasir Little at North Carolina. But right now, I've got Zion number one uh, in my 2019 NBA mock draft. You can check that out, cbssports.com. So last night, um, today's your little boy's uh, birthday. Uh, yesterday was my youngest son's birthday. Last night, we had his... Uh, birthday party, but I did um, get home in time to to watch uh, the the later tips, Oregon, Iowa, uh, specifically. Um, but an, among the notable um, results was Ohio State moving to three and zero. They got a win at Creighton after already getting a win at Cincinnati. That's two top forty five. That's two road wins over top forty five Ken Palm teams. Nobody else in the country's got two. Uh, nobody else in the country's got more than one. Um, but here's Chris Holtman doing it again. Hmm. And I wonder if, like, he's becoming one of those guys you just have to trust. You know, uh, Like John Beeline. These, like, I'm sorry? Like John Beeline. Sure. Like Bo Ryan once upon a time. Like, you just, like, hey, I get why on paper you're skeptical of, of what this team might be, but uh, is Chris Holtman the coach? Yes. Okay. Then don't be because they're, they're going to be good. You know, like he obviously takes over for Brandon Miller um, just before the season under, in, you know, incredibly difficult circumstances. And he's coached four full seasons of basketball since then. All four seasons, he made the NCAA tournament. All four seasons, he won games, at least a game in the NCAA tournament. Last year, um, he takes over for Thad Mata in June. Um, th- that team's picked 11th in the Big Ten. It ends up going 15-3 and three in the league, finishing tied for second. Then he loses five of his top seven scores from that team. So, reasonably, I think, uh, the p- team's picked ninth in the Big Ten. And then they open the season, they go win at Cincinnati, and now they've won at Creighton. It's pretty impressive stuff. So, yeah, um, you know, Maybe he's going to do this again, <laughs> and and if he does, I'm with you. I'm I'm going to have to subscribe to the never doubt Holtman club again until proves me wrong kind of deal. And by that, I would mean, barring just an absolute disaster of a roster situation, slot Ohio State top thirty in the preseason and just wait it out. So they got the two road wins at Cincy at Creighton. Those teams are not as good this season as they were last season, but they're still they're true road wins. Um, and the style, I I happened to watch both those games. The, the way that Ohio State got the wins was were impressive in different ways. Um, Creighton came back with a heavy hammer against OSU on Thursday night, and then uh, the Buckeyes responded well and got a nine-point win. Their win at home is over a Fort Wayne team that, for the mid-major levels, actually, they, they might have a, a, a guy who on that roster, John Conchar, who, like, really flirts with making the NBA. So there's even something to that one. And they put 107 on Fort Wayne, Purdue-Fort Wayne. Um so two things, Parrish. One, where do you have OSU now ranked in your daily top 25 and one? 
I moved him up to 19. I had him unranked yesterday, but you know, at some point, I respect the resume. Right. Um, and, you know, and, I mean, you go win, and it's not like you know they got wins over two top 20 teams or two top 10 teams, but they do got two wins over top 45 teams. I mean, you know, they they you win at Cincinnati, you win at Creighton, and you win by eight at Cincinnati, win by nine at Creighton. Um, combine that with the computers are starting to like Ohio State. I think preseason they were 41st at Ken Palm. Now they're up to 29. Um, I didn't have any reason not to keep them out of the top 20. I've got them 19th. Yeah, and I won't. I won't do this. Uh, a micro. I won't do micro schedule and result resume analysis on every pod. But in my opinion, if if you stopped college basketball now, the season right now, and made a field, Ohio State's a one seed. The resume validates it. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it, it, it's such a – no, I wouldn't agree. But the Who resume – Who else – Parrish, what other resume stack up with Ohio State to – what are the four teams that have better wins than Ohio State right now that would push them off the, the theoretical one line? There's Again, no- this same, it's, it's rooted in the same stuff we argued about a few podcasts ago. Um, Michigan going and winning at Villanova is more impressive than winning at Yes, Cincinnati. that's one game, but what else does Michigan have? We're talking about all the wins they have. I'm not talking about one game. Michigan's one win is better than any single Ohio State win. I agree with that. But the totality of the resume right now, Ohio State has two true road wins against top 45 teams. Who else can stack up with that? That's all. I, I, I think this is where our philosophies just um, diverge. You seem to like... And don't let me speak for you, but you seem to like quantity over quality. Like they've got two of these things as opposed to one of these things where I would simply argue it is more impressive to win at Villanova than it is to win at Cincinnati and at Creighton. That one win is better than these two wins. I, that would be my argument. Yeah, I would say in this specific case, uh, the Villanova win was very, very good, and it clearly outpaces either of Ohio State's wins. Um, the two road wins against Cincinnati and Creighton, to me – uh, if you put both on the scale, I would, yes, to me, the two road wins out, outmatch just the one at Villanova, so we do disagree there. And Ohio State's one home game is clearly a tougher opponent than the two home games that Michigan had. So, yes, that's why I land there. That's all. But I was just – we don't have to, like, harp on this. I was just curious if you would put them there. To me, Ohio State unequivocally has a top-four resume in college basketball. Again, and, this is stupid. We're 10 days into the season. But uh, it, this is just more to note what Holtman's done immediately, and it's automatically impressive. And, yes, Ohio State absolutely needs to be ranked and should be ranked when we get to the polls on Monday again. Yeah, that's where um, I, I, I hesitate to talk about who would be a one seed right now because some of this just comes down to opportunity. No doubt. And the way you schedule. And some schools – because they don't have to, um, they don't they don't schedule in a way that even gives them these opportunities by November sixteenth. But either way, we can we can agree on this. I mean, like, but when we talk next Wednesday, um, you know, Duke might be sitting here with a win over Kentucky, a win over Auburn, and a win over Gonzaga. Like, what done? Then yeah, no de- yeah. no debate. Right. Yeah. Oh, like some of it's just about you know where we are in the calendar, but we can agree on this: Ohio State being picked ninth in the Big Ten. And sitting on November 16th with wins at Cincinnati and Creighton, uh, that is an awesome start to the season. And uh, it, it, there's at least some, uh, there's some stuff there that suggests uh, Ohio State ain't going to finish anywhere close to, to ninth in the Big Ten. Except for maybe you can be good and finish ninth in the Big Ten. Because when I moved Ohio State uh, into the top 25 and one this morning and then also moved Wisconsin, I now have eight Big Ten teams in the top 25 and one. And and I could have reasonably put Iowa in too. 
Yeah. I just I did I did I just picked Wisconsin over Iowa because I think Wisconsin's better than Iowa. But I I've got eight um eight Big Ten teams in the top twenty five and one, and that does not include the Big Ten team that just beat the Pac twelve favorite. It leagues off to a good start. Leagues off to a great, great, great start. This is really good early showings for the Big Ten and you know, let's get through one more week and see where we stand. But I'm telling you, these kinds of wins, they do matter. They do add up uh, down the road. It's, when, you are, when you are this much better, Parrish, from the rest of the sport and how well you've performed as a league, it, will, it just has a way of, of compounding in a good way for you. The Big Ten is 34-3 and overall. That is by far the best win percentage. Um, this is uh, courtesy of KPI Sports. Let me rattle these off real quick. Big Ten is number one with a 920 win, uh, 919 winning percentage, round up to 920. Big 12 is two at 22 and three. The ACC is three at 34 and five. That's an 872 win percentage. Big East is fourth, 21 and six. The Pac-12 is actually fifth, which is shocking that it's ahead of the SEC, which is uh, Pac-12 is 23 and 7, the SEC is 26 and 9. Um, but the Pac-12 has had miserable losses. Like the seven losses the Pac-12 has are horrible, horrible stuff. And then it's uh, the WCC is actually seventh at 23 and 8. But the Big Ten, with its quantity of overall games, I mean, it's, it's 34 and 3, that's 37 games. The Big 12 is second. It's played 25 games total, granted less teams, but still uh, just really nice early returns. And yes, Iowa, real quick on that, um, We'll see what they do uh, on, on Friday night against UConn, and if they can get that, then they're going to be a thing, and I would actually think they're going to be in your rankings come Saturday morning if they could beat UConn. But um, for Iowa to win, I watched that Iowa-Oregon game start to finish. Uh, maybe have a little bit of regrets about it, um, but I wanted to see what Bull Bull will do. Point is, they looked good for what, they, for what we expected them to be. So, yes, on the whole, just to, to extend the, the conversation we had on the previous podcast, Parrish, awesome returns on the Big Ten because it's not just good teams. We're going to spend the whole season talking about the fact that so many of these teams have, have really good players on it, from veterans to freshmen, all, all across the board. So this, yes, this is uh, this was not something that people expected, but the Big Ten is off to a fantastic start and when you can get just those those little ones that are unexpected here and there. Michigan wiping the floor with Villanova. Iowa taking out 13th ranked Oregon. Those kind of things compound, make it all the In better. Beating Marquette. Yes, and that that's one we didn't even we didn't even get to we didn't have on our rundown. But frankly, Indiana looked awesome, awesome, awesome against Marquette, which has its own defensive issues. But you get Romeo Langford playing a great game. Juwan Morgan, that team's best player, you know, according to the coaching staffs and considering what he's done, he didn't even have like a B plus level game, and they still win easy. That kind of stuff, huge signs for the Big Ten. So yeah, just let's let's give them uh, and that league some respect because it is off to a fantastic start a week and a half into the season. If it can get another seven days with similar results, just take on only another three or four losses total, it's going to be in the driver's seat to be the best conference in college basketball this season. But let's just wait and see uh, post-Thanksgiving where everything stands. You can't overstate how big this stuff is because um, obviously Ken Palm is not what the selection committee will use as a grouping tool. That'll be this new formula, the NET or NET. Um, so it's not apples to apples. But for whatever it's worth, right now, there are 10 Big Ten teams in the top 40 at Kempom and 12 in the top 50. The only ones not in the top 50 right now are Illinois and Rutgers. And so you know as well as I do that once you get to league play, as a league, you kind of are where you are. Because then you're just mostly, yes. if not exclusively, playing each other. 
my point being this, if you really can go into league play with 10 top 40 teams or 12 top 50s, something close to that, then every win you get in the league is a good win. And every loss you take is a, a, a quality loss. So you end up on Selection Sunday, you got nothing but good wins and nothing but and, and no bad losses. I mean, that, that, yeah. that's how you get high seeds. We know that the selection committee, I don't know that they, they come out and say this, but based on the way the seeding was done last season, they really value quantity of good wins with with little regard for opportunity. Just want to know how many how many you got. And the Big Ten is setting up where there's going to be opportunities for good wins, quadrant one wins, all up and down your schedule. And that's how you get seated um, advantageously on Selection Sunday. It definitely is. So uh, we'll see what happens here uh, over the next seven to ten days. But it's it's this is even though we're so early, I would rank this in terms of top three in terms of surprise. I I didn't think the Big Ten would be down down. I just thought it would kind of be a little static from last season. It has not been that so far. Um, and as we get to some neutral court tournament play, tougher teams, maybe things balance out a little bit, but hard to complain with what we've seen so far. Well, here's the other thing about the Big Ten that, that is worth pointing out. When I say I've got eight in the top 25 and one, uh, another way to say that is that I've got six outside of the top 18. Mm-hmm. So I've got Michigan at eight. Michigan State at 11, and then Ohio State at 19, Maryland 21, Indiana 23, Nebraska 24, Purdue 25, Wisconsin 26. The last one, two, three, four schools in the top 25 and one right now, and five of the last six are in the Big Ten. So they're right there. Um, it's not That's why it doesn't feel like the Big Ten is awesome or why people didn't think the Big Ten would be awesome because they don't have the star power like Duke – or Kansas, uh, they don't have a team that brings back all of its pieces like like Tennessee um, or Nevada. So I don't know that how many great teams are in the Big Ten, but they got a lot of good ones, and a lot of good ones makes your league um, makes your league a lot of fun, and it does set you up, like I said, to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity uh, on your league schedule to get the type of wins that are going to really help you on uh, Selection Sunday. Let's move on because, yeah, Iowa beat um, Oregon at the Garden in the nightcap last night, but the early game was the the bigger game, at least the more high-profile game. And Dan Hurley gets his first big win as UConn's coach, knocked out Syracuse at the Garden, got a chest bump before shaking hands with uh, Jim Beheim. That was a, a fun little scene. Let's okay. Let's before we get to the UConn Syracuse like game and, and and all the stuff there. Let's let's just address the the two funny things here. Uh, first of all, like how does it happen? I, I'm I'm genuinely curious how it is even remotely possible that the sun. Of the man who is more associated with the city of Syracuse than maybe any person in the history of the world has been associated with one city, gets his name misspelled on the back of his jersey. How does that happen? And whomever was responsible, do they still have their job? Parish. It it it, it is hilarious that that could happen. Like it's like like first off, you just don't see people's names misspelled on jerseys that often. But for Bayheim to be misspelled on a Syracuse jersey. <laughs> Is like in like what? How, I, I honestly have no idea how that happened because 
first off, like if you live in Syracuse, you should know how to spell Behan. It should just be like spelling dog or cat. Correct. Like if you if you live in Syracuse, Beheim should be easy for you. Um, same way, if you cover college basketball for a living, Shashevsky's easy. That's the one they always get people K-R-Z-Y-Z-E-W-S-K-I. on. K R Z Y Z E W S K I. Correct. I, you just got to know. K- it. <laughs> uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I just. How do I? I just did it. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm not asking how do you spell it. I'm asking. <laughs> I have a very specific way of how I do it. K R Z Y Z Uski. Okay. Oh, so mine with that, mine is Wojciechowski. Yep, mine is uh, Wojciechowski. It's Wojciechowski. That's that's the one that I have to remember. But anyway, right? So these are things you just know. Um, and and the uh, like, like okay, Mississippi. I guess everybody should know Mississippi. It's a freaking state for crying out loud. But like, if you grew up in Mississippi, Mississippi, like you, you've got that knocked out by by the time you're three. Um. How do you not know how to spell Bayheim in Syracuse? And then so, how do you not recognize it when you put it on the jersey? Like, yeah, this just doesn't look right. Because, like, it, it, if nothing else, it should stand out to you. Like, hey, this just doesn't look right. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, and the other weird thing is, I, I guess that's the first time they wore their road unis this season. But, like, like how – when did that get stitched? Like, three weeks ago? Six weeks ago? N- like, he – Buddy never looked at it. Like it wasn't hanging in the locker. Completely fascinated by this mystery. Uh, thoughts and prayers to whomever was responsible. Um, you know, you know, we're obviously playing on Jim Beheim's crankiness here, but that's just—it's not just that you mess it up there, but it's like with that guy. Like you don't want to. You don't want to mess up him and his son's last name there. It was. It was just bizarre. Um, the other thing is this: you mentioned the handshake, Parish. I love this. It's it's first of all it's it's a it's a great if you're a UConn fan it's a great thing to see your new coach so emphatically passionately enthusiastically celebrating with a guy he didn't recruit with someone he has known for maybe six months so it's him and Jalen Adams just you know full on chest bumping as if they're teammates that's just awesome to see like you can just tell there's a genuine bond there already great sign but to <laughs> To go from that, and our buddy Kyle Boone uh, tweeted out and shouts to him because this thing blew up. To go from that, and I mean perish in a split second, to go, yeah, yeah, come on, that's that's what the F I'm talking Oh, Jim, hey, man, good, good win, man. Like, the, <laughs> the transition was awesome. It was as if someone just flipped flipped a switch on on uh, on Dan. Because, <laughs> like, when that's happening, by the way, you – you don't see it in the split second that it's going on, but Beheim is like six feet away. Like he's watching all of this happen, and then and then he just does the quick turn. Hey, man, hey, good good game, man, good game. It was I thought that was hilarious, hilarious, and a classic college basketball coach moment. Well, you and I both have known Dan for a while, and you actually wrote a story about his temperament. Yeah, like he he's not has not historically been the best about controlling his emotions and I know that that was something that his friends had talked to him about not in respect of like uh anything other than yo if you're trying to get the next job like how you um how you present yourself matters to athletic like you can't look crazy um it it, it can't hurt you it, it won't cost you it won't get you fired at Rhode Island but it might prevent you from getting the next job and so he has really been trying to 
I, I know, you know. He, he worked on that. He was conscious of it. And yet, still in the moment, like, you know. It, and this was not anger. as It was joy. Yeah. So it, it plays differently. But he's an intense dude. He gets fired up. Bobby is an intense dude who gets fired he's up. He's even more intense, in my opinion. Bobby is even crazier than Danny. I, th- I think that might be true. I think Bobby might be crazier than Danny. But they're both, like, super intense guys. And um, and you saw that uh, come through last <laughs> Just, night. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, but- I, I thought it was – we talked about Georgetown on the last podcast, and I mentioned how, like, college basketball just – it's better when Georgetown matters. And I'd say the same thing about UConn. Yeah. You know, U- UConn, what it went through the past few years is, like, unimaginable. Like, it should ne- – UConn basketball should never – be what it's been over the past few seasons. Um, I spent a year, um, two years, talking about it is unacceptable for Memphis basketball to slip to where it slipped, but it was even more unacceptable for UConn because historically, you know, Memphis does not compare to UConn. For UConn to get where it went is like what? Yeah. I mean, you have to drive that thing straight into the ground. <laughs> and it looks like Danny's already, because he's really good, like, he's already got it back to being respectable. Like, they, they didn't luck up and win that game last night. They beat them, um, basically, from start to finish. And um, that's good for the American. Um, but it's also just good for college basketball. UConn is one of the big brands in the sport. It, it needs to matter. Just a quick a quick thought. Can you imagine how insufferable this podcast would have been the past two years if I had a daily radio show in Connecticut and we were just constantly like, you you were taking from what you were talking about Memphis and I was taking about what I was talking from Connecticut. Like it would have been it would have been terrible. <laughs> um, so thank God for that. But yeah, no. Listen, uh, in terms of the game, UConn looked great. It might have actually been a little bit aberrational. They were. They were too good from three. Altariq Gilbert, who was a fun player to watch on the circuit, he played for Chris Paul's grassroots team. He has had shoulder issues the past two seasons, and frankly, you like Ollie still doesn't have a job if Altariq Gilbert's fully healthy both of those seasons, I don't think. But for him to, to come back, uh, someone passed along. Uh, apologies, I can't remember the reporter that uh, passed us along, one of the UConn beat writers, but um, he said Gilbert's first comment after the game, after scoring uh, 16 points and hitting, I think, four threes was, I'd like to thank my surgeon, which is uh, very, very true. It's just great that he has the potential here to really show out and show up in a big way, and UConn's got a a fun backcourt with him and Jalen Adams there. They beat Syracuse soundly. Now, Cuse did not have Frank Howard, who is an important player. If he's on the court... Maybe Syracuse wins because Frank Howard's that good. And Tyus Battle, like, he had a decent game numbers-wise, but he wasn't himself. O'Shea Brissett, who can be a fantastically fun guy to watch, was completely a non-factor, which was surprising to me. Um, I still think Syracuse is going to be a top-25 team. I wrote that in my column last night, which is more about UConn than anything. And, yeah, what Hurley's doing here is clearly already infecting the team in a really good way, and UConn's got some hope. I'm not going to say UConn's back. No way it's too early for that, but they are definitely on the move in the right direction. This is kind of when you want to get against a rival at MSG, a nationally televised game. For all intents and purposes, this was the Dan Hurley debut with UConn for most people because they frankly didn't watch the, the first two UConn games against smaller opponents. That's a big-time thing. And I also will note, Siri, I don't think this ultimately uh, mattered Parish, but I think it can be an impact. So I was going to go to the game, as I mentioned in the previous podcast. It was vomiting snow across the Northeast. We got eight inches where I live up here in Connecticut. Roads were absolutely abysmal, and they were icy overnight. So I, you know, frankly, my wife was like, "You're not going." <laughs> wife made the call, but it was the, it was definitely the smart decision. It's it's absurd how much snow we had, 
and I'm actually getting a weird Christmas vibe even recording this podcast with you because I look out my door and there's just in my window and there's just way too much snow on the ground. So I couldn't get in. I bring that up because it took Syracuse like 90 minutes to go a mile and a half in Manhattan. They didn't get into the building until like 45 minutes before tip or something like that. So that just throws the rhythm off. You're anxious to get to the game. Um, you're, you're, you know, you don't really get the proper warm up. You don't get to go through the proper, you know, just the things you like to go through. So I think that also might have played a little bit of a factor as well. But no matter, uh, UConn gets all the credit for the win. They looked really, really good doing it. And that was a, that was a win that both UConn and the American overall needed. Uh, last thing on this, um, uh, f- for the league, um, uh, U- UConn being good is is obviously good because it's, 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 it's I think, the biggest brand in the league. Um, but I... I you know, Memphis just played LSU pretty tough earlier in the week. And the 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 interesting thing that UConn and Memphis have in common is that they're both – UConn, bigger brand than Memphis, obviously, but both big college basketball brands, both with – have gone through, like, incredible nosedives um, over the past couple of years, and both went out and hired guys who – I think are going to be successful at the at the job of getting those programs back to where they ought to be. Still, they inherited what they inherited. Penny Hardaway at Memphis, Dan Hurley at UConn, and they were both preseason sub-100 teams at Ken Palm. Not supposed to be factors in the American. And what we might find out is, is that they, they won't be. But I will tell you, um, you know, if you are UConn under a first-year coach playing in the ACC, or Memphis under a first-year coach playing in the ACC or the Big Ten, it's like, what are you going to do? You just, it, it, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of hope for you. But who's good in the American? You know, I mentioned the Big Ten's got ten top forty teams. The American's got one, Houston, mm-hmm. and it's fortieth. And so, nobody in the top thirty-nine. Uh, Cincinnati's already lost at home to Ohio State. That might be a better loss than it looked like um, on the night that it happened. If Ohio State is really turns out to be good. But still, it's a home loss to a team that was picked ninth in the Big Ten. SMU's got a um, a loss to Southern Miss, I think. Yep, at home. Um, UCF has a home loss to Florida Atlantic. Wichita's got a home loss to Louisiana Tech. They blew it all- against Davidson, Paris. They should have won that game. They lose to Davidson. Um, so my, my point is, like, these are the teams that are supposed to be good in the league. And, you know... Houston's the only one that doesn't have a bad loss on his resume so far. So that should be encouraging for Memphis fans and for UConn fans. Like uh, this week, UConn obviously wins count, Wins are better than losses, and UConn got its on a neutral court over Syracuse, and Memphis did not get its on a uh, in a road game at LSU. But Memphis looked – there was some encouraging stuff from Memphis against LSU on the road against the top 25 team, and obviously some encouraging stuff from UConn uh, on a neutral court against Syracuse. And um, – and, and, and given that the rest of the league doesn't look great, maybe there's reason to believe you can actually compete near the top, if not at the top of the league standings this season. We'll see. I want to close um, on just an interesting thing that happened the past two nights. On Wednesday, a kid named Josh Williams at Robert Morris went 15 of 25 from three-point range, finished with 49 points, tied the NCAA Division One record for 15 three-pointers in a game. By the way, the NBA record is 14. Clay Thompson did it last month. Um, but the college record, Division One record, is 15. And Josh Williams tied it on Wednesday night. And the previous record was set in 1996. So it's been more than two decades since somebody had made 15 three-pointers in a game when it happened on Wednesday. 
Then it happened again Thursday night. Furman's Jordan Lyons, 15 of 35 from three, 54 points. Is that a, a sign of something or totally just coincidental? Uh, it's not coincidental, Parrish. We are going to have – it's funny you're bringing this up because um, I was jotting down just, you know, story ideas, things to write about later in the season. <laughs> maybe we're on the same page. Maybe we want to write about the same thing. But um, – and writers listening to this podcast, you can't steal this, okay? Um, the three-point – like, it's not a new thing, like three-point revolution or whatever. But it's it's just going to hit – Numbers it hasn't hit. We're going to have more attempted three-pointers than ever in college basketball. We're going to have more three-pointers made in the season than we've ever had. Three-point rate, you know, number of shots you take uh, versus your overall um, shot output, two-pointer, three-pointer aside, is going to be as high as it's ever been. Uh, so with that, you're going to have a higher probability of hitting these numbers. It was wild that it happened on back-to-back days. A little bit of a bummer in that both of those performances came against non-Division One teams. So it still stands as, I believe, a Division One record, but um, they just weren't playing. Robert Morris and Furman weren't going up against fellow uh, D1 compadres. So that uh, I was hoping that one of them actually would because uh, it would have you know, been all, all the better, but they were, they were playing low-level schools, which there's way too many of those games in the early part of the season, but those small schools kind of have no choice it's just the the way the scheduling beast but it is crazy and I think we are going to have I'll say this I think that within I'll say within the next two seasons there's going to be someone that hits 16 16 three-pointers in a game uh, against a a division one team you just the way that offense is going uh is is moving in such a way that I think it's undeniable that this is that this is going to happen but just one of the statistical oddities. I'm glad we brought this on the podcast because I, I love talking about this, the random stat stuff that'll pop up. And yes, having back-to-back players or players on back-to-back days hit 15 threes. The last time it happened was 1996. I will credit Jeff Goodman because he actually identified it was uh, Keith. Hey, I just said this two minutes ago. Oh, I'm pulling at you, though. I'm, I'm pulling at you. We've... <laughs> I've done this. You realize that I've done this, and then you've you've repeated things I've said on the podcast. Marshall's Keith Vini, Venny, ninety six with Marshall. So anyway, it is wild. Uh, but I think we're gonna get sixteen threes, maybe in seventeen. Which is st- last last on this parish. That's stupid, by the way. We're not talking an NBA game with forty eight minutes. It's a college game, much fewer possessions, only forty minutes, and college coaches, as a practice, generally speaking are less liberal in allowing their players to do that than NBA coaches. Wouldn't you agree? So the fact that we ha- that the college record uh, outpaces the NBA record is a little surprising to me, even if the college line is closer. Yeah. Um, my understanding, I didn't, I didn't watch either game, obviously, but my understanding is that once both players got close, it, it became the priority. And so it didn't happen in a natural flow of a competitive basketball game. Um, for whatever that's worth. But either way, um, you know, players every night, every season for more than two decades have had an opportunity to go try to get 15 threes, and nobody had ever been able to do it since 1996, and then it happens on back-to-back nights. So um, so shouts to Josh Williams, shouts to Jordan Lines, and uh, shouts to Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina, shouts to Terry M. F. and Tigo, the legend, shouts to Larnell, and please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts, all I've ever asked from you. Rate it favorably. Five stars with nice comments and do that. And then we will talk to you again, I guess, on Sunday. I am flying to Maui tomorrow. Should be settled in uh, late Saturday night. 
and then we'll podcast again on Sunday. I'll tell you how beautiful the uh, ocean looks and all that stuff. All right, that's fine. We're just going to do it around the Bears game. They've got the Sunday night game. We ain't podcasting when that's happening. So it's either before or after. And you know what? Maybe it's after because you're going to be five hours behind. So who knows? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to uh, podcast late at night in Maui. Well, we're not podcasting before the uh, during the Bears. That's all I'm saying. Big game po- against the Vikings. Big game. Big game, Parrish. I ain't trying to stay sober all night on a, uh, in Maui. So I, so I can podcast after a football game. We're we going to get this thing knocked <laughs> says, out early say, Sunday. Who says you a, can't do both? A, who says you can't do both? Yeah, I can't do both. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm at least responsible in that way. I get my work done before I start pouring a drink. I get you. All right, well, we'll get yeah, we'll get something done on Sunday, have something ready for the listeners with uh, Maui Preview and all the other good stuff that's going to kick off early next week. All right, so, yeah, go subscribe to the On College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast, and we will talk to you again relatively early on Sunday. Till then, take care.